Beloved, I'm going to read from a lengthy passage of the Old Testament, so I'm going to ask you to sit. We're going to read from both the Old and the New Testaments this morning. And I think for some of you it would be better if we were sitting so that we could uh, pay attention. I'm going to read from Proverbs 8 and then from 1 Corinthians 1. Proverbs chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to read from verse 12 down through the end of chapter 8 in Proverbs. And then from verse 26 and following in 1 Corinthians 1. Before we do so, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the gospel this morning. Our gracious Lord, we do humbly come before you this morning as we have, Lord, gathered, as we have submitted ourselves, as you have come and met with us, O Lord. We confessed our sins and now we come, O Lord, to be taught and instructed. Lord, we need you as our prophet to teach us. We need enlightenment. We need understanding. So we need you as our prophet. We need you, O Lord, as our priest to cleanse us and wash us, Lord, where we find ourselves out of accord with the truth of your word, Lord, come and bring repentance to us. And we need you as our king, Lord, for we are weak and we do lack understanding and the ability to understand. And we need you to come, O oh Lord, and subdue us. We need you to come and build us up. We need you to come and lead us and guide us, O oh Lord, as our great general and king. So do bless the reading of Proverbs 8 and 1 Corinthians, O oh Lord, as we consider the place of humility among us and in the spreading of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin reading at verse 12 of Proverbs 8. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than the choice of silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water before the made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set the sea its boundaries, for the sea its boundaries, so that the water would not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. 
And then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, watching at my doorpost. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. And all those who hate me love death. And now 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty, and not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised that God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Well, beloved, I think you can, you already know why I read from Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8 is that wisdom literature that is expressly um, teaching us about Christ. Proverbs 8. It's that personalized wisdom that Christ is that wisdom. And to find him is to find all of the treasures of this life. All that you could ever hope for, all that you could ever dream of, all that you could ever delight in, Christ is that wisdom. He is that for those who truly love him and seek him and desire him. In Proverbs, or 1 Corinthians, in the passage that we read, we are reminded that the wise are those who have their trust in Christ, who have their union with Christ, who are coupled with Him, who are united with Him by the Spirit of God. Those that have been, well, justified, those that are being sanctified, and those who will be redeemed one day. And Paul is combating pride and arrogance in this body. Paul is having to address the the fallout, if you will, of what happens when men begin to listen to doctrines and teachers that are not Christ-centered and not doctrines that flow out of the Word of God and flow from Christ as the revelation of God. You know, I was reminded this week as I took the time to uh, listen to several uh, debates and um, 
primarily of Christian uh, Zionism, Christian and Islam. And in listening to these debates, these scriptures certainly came to life in my head. As the Christian would debate these Judaizers, the Zionist, as he would debate the Muslims, I mean, it was clear from the start that there was an extreme prejudice and hatred against the Christian Jesus. Even though, even though the Judaizer would say, well, I have no problem with Jesus. Meaning, I don't have a problem with this God Jesus that everybody wants to exalt, but I have a problem with the Christian Jesus. I have a problem with the Christian claims about Jesus. I have a problem with what you say Jesus is in relationship to Abraham and the children of Abraham. I have a problem with that Jesus. It was very similar for Islam, for the Muslim. For the imam who would say, oh, I don't have a problem with Jesus. Jesus is a prophet. Muhammad just is a greater prophet. But Jesus is yet a prophet. And the Quran tells us that we need to respect the teachings of Jesus. But beloved, it's not the Jesus of the scriptures that they respect. Amen. Very clear that both the Judaizer and the Muslim despise the, the doctrine that Jesus is both God and man. They despise it. They always have foolishness to think and to believe in such a thing. And that's why the Muslim will say that the Christian cannot be a monotheist, but an idolater. He worships many gods Three gods. And of course, the debate went on in the back and forth of that doctrine primarily. It's not any different from what Paul is having to deal with. The teachers of the day, the philosophers of the day, the scribes of the day, the debaters of his day. Those who had become influencers within the body of their, the church at Corinth and was beginning to, to infect the congregation with their teaching and their doctrines. And of course, the fruit of their teachings was that they were becoming very divisive and separated from one another. As Paul says in chapter one, I have been, it's been reported to me that you are bickering and fighting among yourselves. That you have segregated yourselves in different groups, highlighting a teacher or some aspect of teaching or doctrine that you prefer, and it has caused a problem in the church, because that's not what the church ought to be and ought to be about. Paul is writing to correct these things. This morning, I want to remind us of the place of humility. I want to remind us that we are to be not just Christians, but we're to be humble Christians. And why this text of Scripture teaches us to be humble. And why we ought to take the time to always combat pride in us and pride in our midst. 
why we should be aware of it, why it should be concerning to us, why we want to, to be sensitive to pride and arrogance as a church, as a body, as a ministry. And beloved, just to leap ahead a little bit, I mean, remember some of them even said, well, we're of Jesus and we're of Paul. I mean, Paul was the founder of the church here in Corinth. He was the father, their spiritual father, he said to them. I mean, you could think, okay, well, there's a place for them to sort of set Paul up on a pedestal. No, there's not. No, there's not. There's not a place for the church to set any man on a pedestal. No man. Not the founder of the church, not the present preacher of the church, not the greatest philosopher of the church, not the most eloquent pastor of the church, but to keep Christ as our focus, to keep Christ as the head of the church, to keep our vision and our focus upon Christ so that we can truly, well, minister in his name and be the salt and light that we've been called to be in the world that we live in. Now let's begin looking at this humility that we're being called to in verse 26 and following. Notice the very first thing that Paul says in verse 26. He says, for consider your calling brethren. There are not that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are. Now, beloved, the first thing we see in verse 26 is the call to consider. What does he say? For consider your calling. See this calling. Consider these things. How are we to combat arrogance? How are we to combat our own personal pride? First of all, let's remember how we became Christians. We didn't become Christians by taking a course, a seminar. We didn't go to some annual conference and there in that conference through the power of great teachers and philosophers hear these arguments that would convince us, that would appeal to our own intellect and explain the deep mysteries of God to convince us, you know what, it's best that I become a Christian Now, what's interesting is when Paul wrote these words, the Christian church was at its infancy. When Paul wrote these words, the church was still very much persecuted. The church was very much being mocked and despised and, and being thought of as just a sect of crazy people. Remember, that's even what really spurred Paul to go out and persecute the church. He, he just believed that these were just fanatics and these heretics 
who are blasphemers and he wanted to go rectify the situation. He wanted to go punish them. He wanted to go deal with these strangers to the truth, if you will. Not much has happened from the conversion of Paul to now the the writing of 1 Corinthians. And Paul writes this. He says, beloved, look around. Consider your Christian walk. Consider your faith. Remember, they were the very first ones in Corinth. God had sent Paul there. You go back and read Acts 18. Paul's coming off of the being mocked on Mars Hill. Paul's coming fresh off of of being laughed at from the, well, modern day philosophers that gathered on Mars Hill in Athens to pontificate the deep mysteries of life. And, And they made fun of Paul. They laughed at him. You remember the word they used for him, a seed picker, a little sparrow. Really what they were saying is he was a lightweight and he really had no, well, There was nothing about him that was on their level. They were superior. He was the inferior. And Paul leaves there and God sends him to Corinth. And he says, Paul, go preach the gospel there. I have many there that I'm calling to my son. Many there I'm going to save. Out of obedience, Paul goes. Paul, it's not that Paul, you know, closed his eyes and opened a map and put his finger down and says, We're going to Corinth. That's not how it worked. The Lord led Paul to Corinth because he said, I have many elect there. I want you to go preach the gospel. Paul's calling them to consider their salvation, consider their calling. And that's what he says, beloved, consider your calling. How did you come to know Christ? We've already, uh, you know, considered even our last sermon, did we not? We considered these things that, the world calls foolish and weak. And Paul's bringing that closer to home and calling upon them to consider their calling in Christ. And yet we too have to consider our calling. And yet we're 2,000 years later and we've had whole nations bow a knee to the gospel of Christ. When Paul wrote this, Constantine had not seen the vision, the heavenly vision. Christianity was still illegal in many places. We're several hundred years before Christianity would be considered safe. And yet, we live in a day and time that we have seen the whole world, especially what we consider the Western world, benefit from Christianity benefit from the wisdom of Christ, benefit from the power of the gospel, benefit from the transformation of paganism, the idolatry of the Celtics, I mean, the the Norwegians, the Vikings. I mean, what people, the Africans, the Egyptians, what people has not been conquered by the gospel? There is none. Everywhere the gospel has gone, it has left an imprint and an impact for the good of man. There's a great um, Lorraine Bettner, not a woman, a man, wrote a great 
article on the advances of society through the faith, the Reformed faith in particular, but talking about the educations, talking about the worship, talking about the work ethic, the culture, talking about art, um, I mean, all kinds of um, uh, civil matters. I mean, how the world has been shaped flowing out of that gospel recaptured, the apostolic teaching recaptured from the Reformation. And yet we too have to consider these very words for ourselves because it's not in these advancements, beloved, that we ought to take our delight in, is it? We could all sit back with arrogance and pat ourselves on the back and talk about the science and talk about the technology and we could talk about the, 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 the greatness of our own culture and society, the greatness of all of the medical advancements, the education, everything. I mean, we're more educated than we've ever been in, in the history of the world. And yet, at the same time, we are some of the most ignorant people, morally deficient people the world has ever seen. And beloved, as we consider these things, we too have to remember, have we taken pride in these advancements rather than in the one who granted them and, and gave them? I think so. I don't think that's a stretch. I don't think we ought to pontificate and think about it too long. I think we need to consider how the world has gravitated to the blessing and not the blesser. And I'm talking about really not, not the world in the sense that Paul's using it here, so I need to clarify that. I'm talking about the world. I'm talking about where we live, the church. The arrogance to think we can just start a church and teach anything we want to because we like it. The arrogance of thinking, well, I know what the Bible says, but we're going to do it this way. The arrogance of sending out a, a uh, survey and asking the people, what would you like to see in the church so we can start a church in your area with those things? It's arrogance. It's arrogant to think that somehow we know better than God about what is needed in this world, that we know better than God than how to start a church, that we know better than God and what to preach other than the gospel of Christ, that we know better than God when it comes to asking and commanding repentance and faith. And Paul, in verse 26, says, consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh and not many mighty, not many noble. I think when we get down to it, even though we can look back 2,000 years and we can say, oh, there's been a lot of kings, there's been a lot of kingdoms, there's been a lot of people profess faith in the Jesus Christ, but nevertheless, beloved, it's not being a king, being a mighty, being a noble is not what saves anybody. And that's the point Paul is making here. In fact, and that's why he adds verse 27 to it. He says, but, and it's a strong conjunction there, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. 
God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he might nullify the things. That are. I mean, verse 28, when he talks about the base things of this world, he's talking about the, uh, uh, he's talking about the ignoble. The ignoble. Uh, Hodge, in his commentary on Corinthians, put it this way. He said, these are the despised of the plebeians. It's the low of the low. It, it, it's, it's, it's like seeing, you know, a, a homeless encampment, and yet then there are those that they don't even associate with. That these are below them. And, and what Paul is saying is, do you not know? And notice how he's destroying the arrogance and the pride of those who sit in the pews who think, somehow I am worthy of this great salvation that I have in Christ. That I've earned it, or at least I didn't earn it to get it, but I've earned it to keep it. Either one is wrong. And Paul is calling us to consider that when it comes to salvation, we are ignoble. We are the lowly. We are the weak. We are the despised of the world. And, and I think that's why I want to go back to this debate. I want to lay it before you because I'm reminded in this modern debate, beloved of the animosity that people have of Christ, the hatred they have for him, the, the, the willingness to mock the idea that Christ is both God and man. And for you to put your faith in him makes you worthy of ridicule as well worthy of mockery what a fool you are they would think they would say how foolish it is to believe in such a thing and of course the appeal to the Christian is think about these things use your intellect and 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 just ponder what you're saying because if you would come to your right intellect you would reject this idea that Jesus is both God and man but remember what Paul says. These things are not known naturally. These are supernatural revelations. These are the things that God does. This is the power of God unto salvation. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the gospel. This is the transforming intellect building of the gospel preaching that the Holy Spirit brings. He opens our eyes and our minds to these blessings and truths. And that's why they're called mysteries. We're going to, you look in, look at chapter 2. Look at verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our 
glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to that verse, but I just wanna use that verse this morning to point out a few things. This is why Paul calls the gospel and even the sacraments a mystery. A mystery is that which can only be understood when it is divinely revealed to us. That only God can open, pull back the curtain, if you will, and allow us to see in the room. It's God that does these things. It's God that gives us the eyes to see and that gives us the understanding. And when God shows us this thing, he confirms it to our hearts and our minds, giving us the ability to say yes and amen to it. It is not out of human strength. It's not out of human intellect that we know these things and that's why Paul calls them mysteries. Because he doesn't want any of us to take and pat ourselves on the back. That's why verse 29 is so important so that no man may boast before God. You see, beloved, Paul is calling us to consider our calling. Paul is, is, is commanding us to consider our calling. He says, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The foolish things of this world, the shame to wise. I mean, and that's exactly, listen, when you, when you take the humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's why the, he called fishermen to be his apostles. Remember the Pharisees had a problem with it. Who are these uneducated fishermen? Who are they to us? We're, we're educated. We're the scholars. We're the scribes. We're the moral teachers of Israel. Who are they and what place do they hold in this debate? And yet, this is who God has called to be his representatives, to preach the gospel and to spread the kingdom of God in Christ, well, to the first century, uh, to those in the first century. He didn't call the mighty and noble and educated. You know, beloved, if I sat down and we said, okay, listen, here's what we're going to do. You're going you're, you're to change the world. You're going to get to pick 12 people. Now, be selective. Be wise in your selections. Pick 12 people. And, and then I want you to list out about five or, or 10 characteristics that you want to have and, and resources you want to possess so that you can go out and change the world. You know what you would do. You'd, you, you would start scouring all the seminaries and all the colleges, all the universities. You'd go, I can get the most, I want to get the debater. I want to get the philosopher. I want to get the, the, the guys that can really talk and speak. I want to get the charismatic. I want to get the people that, you know, the people that are easy to listen to. They, gra they gravitate to these people. I mean, that's the people you're going to get. It's like a sport team 
They're trying to get the best players they can get so they can win. And when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to salvation, it's the opposite with God. God wants to demonstrate his power and his glory in calling the ignoble, the lowly of the lowly, saving them and displaying his saving grace in them. And he sets them up so that the whole world would see and be amazed that these people have changed. That these people, Something's different about them. Turn, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and then we're going to look at chapter 2. This calling, of course, by covenant, this is what we were called to. Adam certainly fell from the first covenant that God made with him and God established a second covenant of grace. We've been confessing our way through that portion of the Westminster Confession. But notice all of this is predicated upon and built upon the foundation of God's election. And that's what Paul is talking about. He says, listen, these are the things that God has chosen for himself in the world. And he says there in verse 3, he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Now, beloved, listen to me. Paul's going to go on and he's going to speak to the thieves. He's going to speak to the liars. He's going to speak to the greedy. He's going to speak to the homosexuals. He's going to speak to the immoral. He's going to speak to all of these things. And he's going to say, hey, look, this is what you used to be. You're no longer that any longer because God has put his spirit in you. He has changed you. He's given you a new heart and a new, dispensa- a new, dis- uh, a new disposition He's given you a new mindset. He's given you a new power to say no to the carnal flesh and yes to holiness, yes to righteousness, yes to the glory of God. That is so because God has put his spirit in you. And that's what Ephesians 1 is talking about, that God in his election chose you before the foundation of the world to what? Be holy and blameless. In him, in love. It is preposterous. It is absurd. And it is, it is absolutely wrong to think that you can claim to be a Christian and still live in known sin. And think nothing of it. A Christian by the Spirit of God in them strives against sin. Even Listen, to the point of... At times, at times, you might fast and pray. At times, you will study the scriptures diligently and and to, to, to remedy this will, to get this sin in check in your life because the spirit of God is a spirit of holiness and it's working in you to do that which is pleasing to God. You are not your own, beloved. And all of it is to the glory of God. 
We are to never conquer these sins, these habitual sins or these things in our lives and then pat ourselves on the back and we look at our brothers and sisters, if you, if you were more like me, you could conquer these things. Foolishness. We conquer and we are more than conquerors because it's God who is at work in us. It is God who is bringing about the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And this is what Paul goes on to say. But now look at Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to show you this beautiful picture Paul sets out in this epistle. He says, we were dead in verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the spirit of the age. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, notice that transition there in verse seven. What's the purpose? So that, In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, beloved, God has put salvation upon you. He's put his spirit in you so that in the ages to come, you might be set up, if you will, as a trophy of his sovereign grace. That one's mine. This one's mine. I have saved them. I have transformed them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Beloved, Paul is saying, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Put away this arrogance and this pride. Put away this this factuation with these teachers and their teaching and put your eyes upon Christ. The one that God has united you to. Go back to 1 Corinthians and let's look at verse 28. Or verse 30. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. Beloved, everything Paul is saying is consistent. We are to consider our calling. We are to consider what we truly are. And we can't do that apart from the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God coupled with the Word of God that gives us the ability to understand the depths of our own depravity. And even then, it's not what it, it, it could be more. 
It could be better understood. There could be more light there. But beloved, it's the spirit of God that illuminates the word of God, that brings it to the heart of the man and allows us to see who we are. You remember when you were saved? Remember when you thought, oh, how unworthy I am. Oh, God, forgive me. You remember that? Do you remember that? Even you covenant children, you remember that? I know you may have been brought up in a Christian home. Praise God. Praise God for that. You ought to be praising God all the time for that blessing. But that does not, that does not, and that will never secure your way to heaven. Being born in a Christian home, being raised under these blessings, being raised in the church and having all of these privileges, beloved, bestowed upon you are not what is required to get you to heaven It's not. You must come to that place where you see there is nothing I have worthy to offer Christ. I am naked. I am bare. I'm without power. I'm strength. I am ignoble. I'm the low of the low. God, have mercy on me. Save me. Beloved, one of the first things we must have when we come to salvation, we we have to put put to death our pride and our arrogance. I have nothing to offer. And that's why you've heard me say in times past, there's only one thing I bring with me to any prayer, and that's sin. And I have to confess it. I have to confess my thought life. I have to confess the things I say. I have to confess the things I do or don't do. I mean, it is by grace, beloved, that any of us are saved. Paul goes on to enforce that in verse 30 when he talks about this salvation being of God's doing. And then he calls that, he tells us, he teaches us, right? He says that you are called, you are what? It is by, it is by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Let's stop there. It is by the sovereign power of God you've been united to Jesus. You can't unite yourself to Jesus. That's a spiritual function and activity. The Holy Spirit comes to us and then joins us to Christ. It's a spiritual work. It's a spiritual thing. And that's why Paul says it's of God's doing. That's why we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all active in man's salvation. The Father is the elector The Son is the Savior, and the Spirit is the applicator. He's the one that brings Christ to us and us to Christ because we are weak and pitiful and without honor and without any wisdom to do so ourselves. He talks about this salvation he says but we become that is this union we have with Christ in fact let's look at one of the I think clearest passages of scripture on this union and that's John 15 I think this is a beautiful text of scripture that helps us understand the union we have in Christ in verse 1 what does Jesus say he says I am the true vine My father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean, he's speaking to the disciples, because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, now think about it in verse 3. Why are they clean? Because of the word of God that has washed them by the spirit of God. They've repented of their sins and they've been washed in the word of God. Verse four, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. And my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, beloved, several things there, but they all perfectly correlate to what Paul is teaching us in Corinthians. We take no credit for our salvation, that our salvation is union with Jesus Christ. And if we are in union with Jesus Christ, then we have his word in us. Not the word of the influencers, not the word of the philosophers, not the word of the scientists. They don't save. These aren't saving things. It is Christ who saves, and it is only those who abide in him. It's only those that are united in him. It's only those who are in him that can be saved, and Christ is identifying those who are in him. You are in me if my word abides in you. And if my word abides in you, then you abide in me. For if you obey my word, you love me, just as I obey the Father and I love him. I mean, beloved, when we are confronted with this idea of arrogance and pride and when we start, when we start treasuring the blessings over the blesser, we are guilty. We are guilty of pride and arrogance, and then we are not glorifying God. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 30. He says, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God. Christ is your wisdom. Christ is your wisdom. You want to know things? You want to know secret things? You want to know mysteries? Know Christ. All right, listen, every so often we get just in, we get a just, this, this tidal wave of secret knowledge prophets. The Anunnaki, the 
aliens and seeding the earth and the pyramids and the great unlocking the knowledge and all of these secret things and the tablets and all these things that are ancient and old and all this. And the Bible, you know, we took all these other books out. You want to be wise? Know Christ. You want to be wise? Know Christ. There are two people that have fallen into this pitfall in Corinthians. Two kinds of people that Paul will begin to address more particularly in the next few verses. The immature, that's the Christian, who has not grown up yet. They have fallen for these tricks. Immature Christians do. But then there are the natural ones, the ones without the Spirit. They are the ones that are without the spirit. They are the ones that are in church that are just wiser than everybody else. They are the ones that want to hold to these, these, these human mysteries and ideas, these mystery cults, if you will. And Paul says, they do not have the spirit of God because if you have the spirit of God and then you are united to Christ, Christ is your wisdom. He goes on to talk about Christ is our righteousness. This is the initial aspect of the atonement, justification. He is to us wisdom from God and righteousness. He's not just our wisdom. He's not just how we know things. He's not just how we see the world, beloved. He's our righteousness. He's our atonement. He's our justification. He's laid down his life. Go back. We can read Isaiah 53. He has paid for our sins. He's the payment of it. He's our righteousness. He's our standing before God. He's the only reason we have standing before God. He is our righteousness. And then secondly, our sanctification. What does that mean? Well, sanctification is the ongoing work of God in us in this life and in this world. It's, it's the ways in which God comes into our lives and begins to transform our lives in, in, in every way. Now, let me say this about sanctification because I think most people miss this. Beloved, the Christian life has a trajectory. It has a trajectory. When you become united to Christ, what did Christ say over when he was explaining himself being the vine and we're the branches? What did he talk about fruit? What did he say about bearing fruit? That the father prunes the branches so that they bear more fruit, that sanctification. All throughout our lives, we are displaying the glory of God in our character, in our person, in our being, whether we're husbands or wives, sons and daughters, siblings, work, whatever the, whatever the relationship, we are bearing out the kingdom of God in us, the spirit and the power of God working in us, patience, righteousness, kindness, love, mercy, goodness. All of these things is being worked out and played out and being brought forth. In our, why? Because the Spirit is moving us to that effect. And listen to me. I, listen, catch this. There is no place for any of us to come to a place and say, you know what? I'm tired. I'm old. I'm done. That's not a Christian mindset. I believe it's Psalm 97. 
that talks about the, 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 the aged are like palm trees bearing fruit even up into old age. And we have grown accustomed to allowing people to get away with that. Beloved, if you are a Christian and you are united to Christ, you're on a trajectory of being sanctified, of growing up in Christ, of having your sins be put to death, that the power of God is working in you to kill those things that are antithetical to righteousness and holiness and his glory. And then lastly, he says in verse 30, and redemption, what is redemption? Redemption is the, the purchasing, the redeeming from something that is dangerous or unsavory. That is, we've been, Christ has come to redeem us out of what? Well, out of the hands of Satan, out of the kingdom of darkness, out of sin. You, you are taken out of sin, out of darkness, out of a satanic family, you've brought into a righteous family, you're brought into the kingdom of light, you're brought into this, this realm of holiness so that what? You can be a son of light. You can be the son of God. You can be uh, uh, holy and blameless in your speech and activities. You're saved from one thing to another. That's salvation. We have far too many people claiming they're Christians and they have no concept of holiness, no concept of what it is to be blameless before God, no concept of what it is to be united to Christ. Most professing Christians cannot even explain the gospel and what it is. I hope that's not you. I hope that's not us. And then, beloved, we end with this, this primary moral maxim in verse 31. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, he's not saying, hey, if you choose to boast, what he's saying is, quoting the Old Testament, Take, take no confidence and pleasure, ultimate, ultimate pleasure and confidence in the things of this world, but let it be in God. That's why you exist. That's why you were saved. Beloved, you have meaning and purpose this morning. And there is no room for arrogance and pride. But there is every reason to consider your calling, to consider your salvation, to consider your, your condition before salvation, to consider what you were and now what you are, and to give praise and thanksgiving to God. You have every reason, my brothers and sisters, to now glorify God in what he is doing in your life. And I pray that you will. I pray that you will. I pray that these words will not just fall off of your back, but they will find a place in your heart and in your mind, and we will begin even more and more, what? Ready to exalt, ready to praise him, ready to labor for him, ready to be his spokesperson, his witness. And we've come far beyond the first century church, but beloved, we are living in strange times. There is a renewed 
hatred for Christianity in our day. And it's on fire. What an opportunity for us. What an opportunity for us to be witnesses for him. What an opportunity. The darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. And we have been given an opportunity, beloved, to shine brightly in this culture. To speak to many things that's going on around us. But we can't do it if we're succumbed, if we're just burdened with pride and arrogance and somehow we think we're the answer to all of this. We're not. But Christ is. Christ is the answer. Christ is the wisdom that world needs. He's the righteousness the world needs. He's the sanctification the world needs and he's the redemption the world needs. And beloved, it's our job to do what? Glorify God. Give them Christ. I'll go back to the debate. The Christian never backed down in the debate to speak of the glory of Christ as the Son of Man, Son of God. And the more he talked and the more scripture he explained, the more scripture he opened up, the, 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 even the more gracious he was in his speech, it was like throwing gas on their hearts. Because the more gracious he was, the more pity the, the more pitiful he saw their condition in darkness, the more, the, it just threw gas on their hatred and mockery of Jesus. Beloved, we don't give the world what it wants. We give the world what it needs. And that's a saving Savior. Let's pray. Now, Father, in many ways, there are so many things that could be added to these to this lesson, to this sermon, Lord. There are so many other ways in which we can consider the wisdom of Christ, his salvation and sanctification, Lord, and righteousness. And yet, Lord, we've been confronted with this, Lord, the idea that we think too highly of ourselves and not enough of Christ. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you would come to this ministry and this church. You would forgive us, O oh Lord, where we have strayed, where we have, Lord, transgressed these rules and these principles, where we have not kept this moral maxim that glorify you in everything we do, to boast in you and not in ourselves, not in our teachers, but in you. Lord, let our boasting be only in you and give us the opportunity to shine brightly in the world around us. Lord, that's dark, that's dead, Lord, and without hope in this world. And we pray this, Lord, that we give you the glory for what you will accomplish and what you will do in us and through us. And Lord, that you will continue to foster in this congregation a sweet spirit, a sweet spirit, a spirit of kindness, of love, of mercy, Lord, of, of patience, endurance with one another, Lord, and encouraging one another to continue on in, in blamelessness and holiness, O oh Lord that we would all be encouraging to each other, Lord, as we walk on this highway of faith, as we run this race. And we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.